Uh, we are, as, as we are every Sunday, reminded of the promises of the gospel. Uh, there's no other reason why we could be here this morning to worship our God if it wasn't for the poured out blood of Christ. Uh, and that's the hope in which we stand as we worship God also now. So we know our sins are forgiven uh, in Him. Having then heard God's good promises, let's now open the Word of God that He would teach us uh, of His salvation Our scripture reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23, uh, beginning in verse 31, and we'll read through 25, verse 21. 2 Kings chapter 23 beginning in verse 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Uh, Jehoahaz, by the way, is Josiah's son. Uh, His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebediah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin his son reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At the time of this... At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his, and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the, eighth, in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah Jehoiachin's uncle king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the, king, by the, way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldean, Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon." In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the firepans and also the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. 
a lattice work and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the lattice work. And the captain of the guard took Zariah the chief priest and Zephaniah the second priest and the keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzarad and the captain of the guard took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken away into exile out of its land. So far the reading of God's word. The text for this afternoon is the same text that we read, 2 Kings chapter 23, to 30, verse 31 to 25, verse 21. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've now made it to the end of the book of Kings. Almost. There is one more sermon uh, to, to tackle these last uh, verses of chapter 25. Uh, but here we are certainly at the end of Judah's story, the end of the story of the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, at this point, we probably want to step back and, and take stock of what we've seen and, and what's come uh, to, to bring us to this point, what God would have us learn from the history we've looked at over these last years. In the last couple of, of chapters, it seems that the authors of Kings are, are at this point now just rushing over all the details of these different kings' reigns. Some of them are 11 years long, and, and the book of Kings doesn't even talk about the things that they accomplished or, or the things that happened during their years. It just rushes over uh, their time as, as king. Uh, and it wants us to focus our attention particularly on the absolute devastation that the king of Babylon brought. Uh, It's quite shocking when you read through the exile and it stops at just describing the lattice work and the columns of the temple, uh, just so we'd have this sense of, yes, that's what Solomon had built, and it's gone. Uh, It's destroyed. The the chapter wants us just to stop and dwell on that reality. Uh, There's no question by the end of this chapter, Judah is gone. There's no such thing as the nation of Judah any longer. Uh, Nothing was left in its place. Uh, And we're supposed to feel just a weight of sadness as we look back on all that Judah had, all that Judah was, and it's gone. It's all taken away. The people are gone. The royal officials are all gone. Uh, The craftsmen and the nobles are taken away. Uh, The temple and the palace are burned to the ground. Uh, And and even then, uh, just for good measure, uh, several months later, Nebuchadnezzar sends another delegation of men uh, and collects all the people who are still left in the land, gathers them together, and has them also executed uh, just to seal the deal. It's gone. There's nothing left. And so that leaves us asking the question, what happened to Judah? What happened, and why, and what would God have us learn from this history? Well, in the first place, uh, the chapter does want us to just recognize the evil of these last four kings. 
Uh, it, may, it may be very old to us. It probably does feel very old to us hearing this over and over and over again. But the, King, uh, the book of Kings writes it down over and over, giving us the assessment of every king. And so we hear the refrain again, He did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's said of every one of these last four kings. Uh, and it's not just an empty phrase. The chapter gives us little glimpses into what it means when they say He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, three of these kings were, were sons of Josiah. Quite a shocking thing. Two of them were brothers from the same mother. Uh, so three of them were sons of, of Josiah. Uh, first, there's Jehoahaz. He was 23 years old when, when his father died. And, and he reigned all of three months before Pharaoh Necho took him away to Egypt. Uh, then Pharaoh took his older brother, Eliakim, uh, also then a son of Josiah, uh, and made him king. And he lasted for 11 years. Uh, For the last three years of his his reign, he was uh, forced to serve the king Nebuchadnezzar. And then he died. And we don't know how he died. Certainly he was in early death. Uh, Then his son, so this is now Josiah's grandson, Jehoiachin, uh, was made king at at, uh, 18 years old. uh, And he also lasted for only three months before he was taken away to Babylon. Uh, And then finally, his uncle, Mataniah, uh, so this is now Josiah's third son, was made king at 21 years old. So he would have been, uh, uh, just if you want to do the math, he would have been around 10 when his dad was killed in battle. Uh, And he reigns 11 years. Uh, So we have four kings who reign uh, consecutively three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. Uh, And every one of them did evil. In the sight of the Lord. A shocking thing for Josiah, the best king we've had. All of his sons and his grandson do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now as we think about this season in in Judah's history, this last chapter in Judah's history, uh, it's important to also track with the prophets uh, who spoke during these years. We haven't done a whole lot of this, uh, but it's important to, to keep track of what prophets were, were speaking uh, during those years. That's how you interpret what you read in the history, you interpret in, uh, in the prophets. Uh, and so if you want to know what was God saying, what was God doing in response to these kings, you look then to the prophets. Uh, In this case, uh, the prophets who spoke during these years were particularly Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, also Obadiah, and then also, towards the end, Habakkuk. Now, when we read Jeremiah in particular, we get a pretty clear vision of what these kings were like as men, uh, particularly Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, the two kings that reigned 11 years. Jeremiah doesn't really spend time on the the other two because they only reigned three months. Jehoiakim, for his part, was a tyrant. He was a tyrant, just like his grandfather, Manasseh. Uh, 2 Kings 23, uh, verse 35, describes, uh, if you remember, how he taxed the people. It says he taxed the people heavily to pay the, the, uh, the, the money that Pharaoh was demanding. Uh, but Jeremiah compliments that by, by also uh, talking about how at the same time as Jehoiakim was taxing the people, he was building for himself a, a luxurious palace uh, lined with cedar, painted with vermilion, a very, very expensive paint. Uh, and he even refused to pay the workers 
who were building his palace. Uh, So here's a tyrant, a king who's ruling with an iron fist while himself living in in luxury. Uh, Just like his his grandfather Manasseh, Jehoiakim was ruthless uh, towards the prophets in particular. He despised the word of God. Uh, Jeremiah 36 tells uh, a story of how uh, the, the first scroll of Jeremiah, the first copy that ever existed of, of Jeremiah's prophecy, was given to the king, uh, to King Jehoiakim. Uh, and, and he read it in his palace while he was warming himself by the fire. And after every page, he would rip off the page and throw it into the fire. Uh, he, he, he treated the word of God as worthless. Uh, likewise, Jeremiah 26 tells of a, another story of, of Jehoiakim. Uh, a different prophet, Uriah, uh, spoke against Jehoiakim and had to flee to Egypt. And, and Jehoiakim so detested him that he tracked him down in Egypt, brought him back to Jerusalem, and had him executed in public and dumped his body in a graveyard. This is Jehoiakim and, and how he treats the prophets of God. Uh, so when it says here in our, our chapter, uh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, we should always recognize that's an understatement. It's a summary of, of what Jehoiakim was like. Uh, that, that evil played itself out in very real, very terrible ways. Uh, the same is true of, of Zedekiah, though in a different way. Zedekiah has more a reputation of a coward Uh, So if Jehoiakim is the tyrant king, Zedekiah is the coward king, uh, the politician, the king who trusts in men. Uh, He was appointed uh, as king by Babylon. Uh, He wasn't chosen by the people of Judah. Uh, And he first served Babylon, but then switched his allegiance to Egypt when he felt that Egypt was going to have the upper hand. Uh, And then in the end, when Egypt didn't gain the upper hand and was defeated by Babylon, uh, then Zedekiah knew his his days were numbered. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came for Zedekiah, and and Zedekiah, knowing well what happened to kings who resisted Babylon, shut himself up in the city, locked the city gates, and commanded all the people to resist Nebuchadnezzar to the very end. And Zedekiah knew very well what happens to the people that do that. And he wasn't caring about the people. He was caring for his own life. Uh, So he foolishly resists the Babylonians right to the very end. Uh, The city was besieged. It was slowly starved to death. uh, And and everyone knew very well it would be brutalized once the, the, the Babylonians finally got in. All of that to save Zedekiah's own skin. Well, in the middle of that, uh, we we also read in in Jeremiah again of of the way that Jeremiah as a prophet was treated. In the middle of that siege, uh, Zedekiah, uh, the coward king, did not have the courage to actually put Jeremiah to death. Uh, Perhaps he remembered how how his own great-grandfather Hezekiah was delivered uh, by by a prophet of of the Lord. Uh, So he he wasn't willing to put Jeremiah to death, but at the same time, he he also wasn't willing to resist the city officials who wanted to put Jeremiah to death. Uh, At one point then, Jeremiah was falsely accused of of trying to desert to the Babylonians. Uh, This is recorded in in Jeremiah 37. Uh, And he was taken and beaten and thrown in prison. And the king, knowing full well that Jeremiah was innocent, yet did nothing to stop it. 
uh, later in that same chapter, we read of how he had Jeremiah moved to, to a nicer prison. Uh, but even then, uh, when the city officials came to him later saying, no, we'd really like to kill him, uh, he said, well, he's in your hands. I can't do anything uh, to stop it. Well, that's a picture of, of uh, Zedekiah, uh, the king, the coward king. Uh, and then we read also in our text of Zedekiah, uh, when the people were finally starved to the last point and the city wall was breached, what does Zedekiah do? Does he finally then man up and stand before the Babylonians and say, it was me, it wasn't them? No, he, he, he finds a back door and he runs with his soldiers. So not just the king, but even the soldiers are cowards in the days of, of Zedekiah. On the end, we, we read about the terrible end that, that Zedekiah faced. He was caught, he was dragged back to the Babylonians. His sons were killed before his eyes, and then they gouged out his very eyes so that that would be the last thing that he'd ever get to see. And then he, too, is taken off to Babylon. Uh, he, he dies a coward's death. Well, this whole chapter, brothers and sisters, is an absolute horror to read. Uh, both the, the, the wickedness and the cowardice of the kings, and, of course, the horrible, horrible judgment that falls upon them. Uh, Here's the point. When we read these words, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Those are words that should make us tremble. Uh, The history of these kings, uh, not just these, but all the ones that we've had before them as well, uh, should, should produce by now an association in our minds. When we hear these words, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, we should immediately be thinking of the misery that follows that kind of evil. Uh, I'll tell you a story just to illustrate this uh, Jorge Salcedo was, was the captain of a team of mercenaries in Colombia. Uh, this was in the drug wars of, of the 1980s. Uh, he worked for the Colombian military. Uh, he was an honest and a quiet man, but he was skilled at, at what he did. Uh, and as a result, he, he got the attention of, of the drug cartel in, in Cali, Colombia. Uh, he, he, was, he was called in, in 1989 by, by the, the drug cartel. They told him that they wanted just a word with him. Uh, and he knew already then uh, that this was not going to go anywhere good. Uh, but he had to go. They, they had control of the city, so he went. Uh, the next morning, uh, he, he caught a flight to, to Cali. There he met with the, the, the leaders of the drug cartel in a luxurious, luxurious compound uh, where, where they lived. It, it, in fact, it, it, it took up the entire city block, uh, so big was their, their compound. Uh, and... And at the same time, uh, you knew as you walked into that, he describes as you walk in, you know you are, at, you are at the center of the largest criminal enterprise in the world uh, with, with most of the local police uh, and politicians on their payroll. Uh, he would end up, as a result, getting more and more caught up in, in all that the, the, the cartel wanted him to do. Uh, every time he was successful, hoping to appease them, uh, it, only, it only brought him deeper. It only made them need him more. Uh, he eventually became the head of security for, for their families, for the families of, of the kingpins. Uh, during that time, he was forced to witness terrible executions uh, and, and tortures, including those of, of close friends and families. Uh, and it reached a point where he finally realized, I never should have stepped through that door, and it just isn't going to get better. 
1994, after he witnessed uh, the, the, the torture and execution of a young family of four, uh, he finally gave up and called the, the CIA. Uh, he began working uh, for the CIA as a double agent. Uh, and, and it was uh, extremely dangerous, cost him many close friends, and, and almost cost him, on several occasions, his life. Well, Jorge Salcedo now lives in the United States. He's still alive. He changed his name and passport. You'll never find him. If you could, uh, someone else would have found him sooner. Uh, he's still under witness protection after 30 years. Uh, and, and he had an interview uh, several years ago uh, with the media uh, where, where he explained his, his story, uh, obviously uh, uh, not showing his face, uh, but his word of advice to others who faced the predicament that he faced when he was first called, that first phone call is, if you're ever invited into such an organization, stop, run away, don't ever think you'll ever escape. Well, most people in South America understand that kind of visceral reaction. If they call, you run. You do not participate. Uh, and, and they teach it to their children. Uh, when, when someone offers you uh, some, some money in exchange for a simple little innocent uh, deal, don't take it. You'll never get out of it. It always leads to a terrible place. Well, by this point in Kings, that's the sort of visceral reaction we should be having with sin and idolatry of the kind we see in kings. Doing evil in the sight of the Lord always leads to sin and, or, 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 or to, to misery and to horror and eventually to judgment. Every time we've seen it again. If it's not in one generation, it happens in the next. Uh, and that should train us uh, both as a church and, of course, as, as individuals, it should be training us uh, an instinctive urgency. Deal with sin now. Deal with it while you're this deep so you don't have to deal with it when you're that deep. Uh, root it out now uh, while you still can because it won't lead anywhere good. Uh, as we've seen so many times in the Kings, every time we read that phrase, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, we are challenged ourselves, what will be our legacy uh, and where will it lead us? Uh, so that's the first thing we should see, just stopping and, and trembling at those words. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. In the second place, we, we want to observe something of the character of God that also causes us to tremble. Uh, look at chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. Uh, chapter 24, verse 3, Surely this came upon Judah, uh, this is all that misery, came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. Do you hear those words? The Lord would not pardon. Now, those are frightening words and words with which we must reckon because this is our God. Uh, this is the one we call upon as Father. God does not pardon uh, sin unless it's pardoned in the blood of Christ. 
Uh, God revealed himself right at the very beginning to Moses with those very same words. Uh, in, in Exodus 34, it says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty and visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to to the third and the fourth generation. Well, that's what we're seeing in this chapter. This is the consequence of the sins of Manasseh. Uh, that's that's, that's uh, already uh, two or three generations before. God does forgive sin, but he also by no means clears the guilty. As Christians, we, we need to understand this then. Uh, every sin stands before God in bold ugly color, and not just at one time in history, but for eternity. Uh, Even the the sins that, that we do routinely without knowing it are before the eyes of God utterly detestable in God's sight. Every, every despising of God's word. Uh, every cruelty and abuse carried against, uh, out against the helpless, uh, as we see in the life of Manasseh. These things stand before God, not just as sins like they do for us, as sins that stand in the past, but because God is eternal outside of time, these sins stand before God forever. In God's sight. He sees them before his eyes as if in the very moment. Uh, They are continually before him. Uh, Though we forget, God does not forget. Uh, Though though time heals our wounds, time does not heal God's. Uh, God sees these sins and hates them with every bit of his being forever, eternally. Uh, we move on, God does not, until justice is done. And so these verses tell us, all this came upon Judah at the command of Yahweh to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done and the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and God would not pardon him. Uh, like the blood of Abel uh, that is, is referenced uh, hundreds of years later, uh, it, it cries out from the ground and God still hears it. And we need to understand this about our God. Uh, apart from the blood of Christ, uh, sin will not be pardoned. It will not go unpunished. Uh, either our sins will be punished in the cross of Christ or they will be punished under the terrible wrath of God. And that's uh, sadly where we find Zedekiah. Uh, By his refusal to stand under the word of God, he ends up standing by himself outside of the salvation of God uh, without the blood of Christ to cover him. And there he perished and Judah with him. God would not pardon well, this chapter then stands before us as a, as a reminder of the, the, the misery and horror that sin brings. Finally, the last thing uh, we, we want to reflect on, uh, we want to think about the sadness of this moment in, in redemptive history. And we can hardly begin to grasp what a terrible moment this was for God's people. Uh, and here I'm thinking especially of the church of that day. There was still a church. We confess that Christ, from the beginning of, of history to its end, gathers, preserves, and defends his church. There was a church in the middle of Jerusalem in all of this. There was a, a faithful people of God, a small believing remnant, uh, those who were waiting for God's promise. Now imagine this day from their 
perspective. Uh, There's, of course, the the sadness uh, and the horror of the siege itself and the brutal treatment uh, uh, of the Babylonians. They they were absolutely uh, brutal. Men were often dismembered, women raped, children trampled. It, It was, you could really describe it as hell on earth in every imaginable way. And even those left alive were taken off into slavery, taken away from their families, uh, surely, certainly never to see their families again, and and everyone absolutely powerless to stop the might of of Babylon. You know, there there are psalms uh, that were written in this time uh, that that we as a church can't even sing. Uh, Not because uh, they're not the inspired word of God, uh, but just because they're written at an emotional depth that we cannot even begin to fathom. Uh, we, we sang the first two stanzas of Psalm 137. I don't think I'll ever choose the last two stanzas uh, that, that call for God to do what the Babylonians did uh, to, to, to the people of God. We can't sing that because we can't even begin to understand the depth of agony that that song was written from. Uh, uh, So as the exiles are mocked in in Babylon, uh, Psalm 137 uh, says, How blessed is he who repays you with what you've done to us. How blessed is he who takes your your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Why? Why such a terrible song? Because that's what they saw. That's what these parents saw done to their children. Uh, It's a prayer of an empty and a shattered heart uh, with nothing uh, to do but fall upon uh, the justice of God. Uh, So there's the the physical trauma, but there's also the spiritual trauma that God's people went through to see the temple, the only hope for mankind as far as they knew at that time, to see the temple burned to the ground and everything in it melted away. Uh, The gold and silver melted away. Uh, That's the end of God's promises as far as the church of that day would have known. It was over. God's promise to David was over. There's no longer a son sitting on the throne. That was supposed to be forever. Where's David's son? Uh, The sons of Zedekiah, uh, who are, of course, the, the, the last hope of the line of David, are slaughtered before his eyes. Uh, God being among his people was gone. Ezekiel, who's one of the prophets that speaks from the perspective of the exiles, uh, Ezekiel uh, has a vision where he sees the glory of God departing from the temple and going to be among the exiles. And we think back to the, to the days then of, of when the temple was built. Uh, that's why all these details are, are recorded about the construction of, of the temple. To have us remember that day as the church of that day was remembering that day. Uh, we think of God promising to dwell there. Uh, we think of Solomon's beautiful prayer that God would be there uh, with, with his people. That God would honor that temple. Uh, it may be hard for us to understand, but that was the hope of the church. Of that day. So, in every imaginable way, God seems to have forsaken his people. There's nothing left on earth of God's covenant. And that, apart from the last verses that we'll look at next week, that's how the story ends. The devastation is just absolute. Uh, Even after the exiles are taken away, then Nebuchadnezzar sends a delegation just to to check and see whether there's any powerful people left in the land. And he finds a few, hauls them away, and has them executed. Uh, That's what the author of Kings wants to impress upon us. It's over. 
There is nothing left. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the final result of sin that is not repented of and dealt with. This is the just and horrible judgment of God. Now we know, uh, of course we know, redemptive history uh, goes on. Uh, God had purposes that extended beyond uh, the exile. Uh, But as we stand here in this chapter, uh, we need to recognize anything that God does past this point, God does by grace. Anything that comes after this is is grace. Uh, This is where uh, the history of salvation could well have ended. God would have kept his side of the covenant. It could have ended there. Uh, The the people uh, that God had chosen out of the human race to be the bearers of salvation had utterly forsaken it, and it could have been the last chapter. Uh, It could have ended there. Uh, Well, next week we we see in in, in the last uh, section of the book of Kings, the very ending of chapter 25, that God nonetheless has some plans for the future. Uh, God, uh, God's salvation looks into exile through the suffering, uh, through the hardest chapter that Israel would yet go through, to the other side. And, and there God continues His plans for salvation. Uh, but here as we stand on this side of it, uh, we, we should stop and, and tremble at God's justice uh, when we read those very, very last words of Judah's history. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Uh, that's there to remind us when God, uh, means his, when God says his promises, he means them. When God says his threats and his warnings, he means them. Uh, God's judgments are just and right. Uh, Anything that we receive from him beyond them is just grace. Uh, So this chapter stands here as a foretaste of hell. It is. It's a foretaste of hell, uh, a precursor of God's judgment, so that we would see exactly what Scripture means when Scripture says the wages of sin is death. Uh, That's what this looks like. Uh, This is what sin not repented of leads to. And that is exactly why Christ had to come. That's why we need to see this. So we know this is why Christ had to come. Because God does not clear the guilty. Uh, Those who aren't covered by Christ's blood will be covered with the wrath of God. I trust you understand, brothers and sisters, this could just as well have been us. And there's nothing in us that that would would make us uh, unlikely to end this way. Now, the inclination to idolatry, it exists in us just as much as it did in them. Uh, Every evil desire uh, that that led to this miserable moment exists in us. The inclination to tyranny, that exists in us. The the inclination to cowardice, that's there too among us. Uh, Knowing that and seeing where it leads should cause us to tremble and should cause us to flee to the grace of God. Uh, Our only hope for salvation, the miserable death that Christ died, uh, reflecting in many ways this miserable moment in in Judah, uh, was was there to carry upon himself the full judgment that our sins deserve, so that you and I might be delivered from it. Uh, Christ let himself be rejected by the Father in order that we might not be, that we might be forgiven and and restored. Uh, He he shed his blood so that ours would not have to be shed. Uh, And he promises us that everyone now who turns to him for mercy 
will never be turned away from him. And what that means then is that you and I, though we deserve the same end, can call upon him for mercy, uh, even though we know what lives within us, and can have full confidence that we will receive that mercy. Christ didn't die that death in vain. Uh, And that's exactly why we get to be here this morning. uh, Because we're called by God not to stand before His judgment, as we might well expect, as we certainly deserve, but rather to worship Him, to do so with joy and with gratitude. And to even get to call upon this God as our Father, because in Christ, our guilt has been paid. This judgment that we deserve has been averted. Uh, It has taken place, and we've been delivered from it and brought into a whole new kingdom, into the kingdom of Christ. With all that in mind, then, as we look back on, on, on the whole of the book of Kings, we can now stand before God, and we can worship God knowing that all of this is by grace. And we can do so with confidence, because even though that was the end that we deserved, instead, in Christ, we're rescued and brought into eternal life. That's the grace of God. Amen.